Engineer. Hey everyone, welcome to the fourth episode of the Engineer Podcast, where we discuss asset management, finance, and hedge funds, focusing on the technology that's used to empower all of these organizations, interviewing thought leaders, engineers, and investors that are making it all possible. I'm your host, Michael Watson. And today we're having a good friend, great thought leader in the space, Sachin K, coming on the show. He has been in the alternative data side for a long time, started his career in equity research, then joined Point72 as a data scientist in the early stages, and now is head data scientist of a multi-billion dollar credit fund. Sachin, thanks for coming down to Miami and uh, joining the show. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to have you give the listeners a quick walkthrough of your background. Like, how do you end up getting in the seat that you are, where you are the head of data science of this massive fund? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I started off my career in equity research, um, covering the healthcare space. Um, was always interested in data-driven insights, and the opportunity popped up at Point72 to sit in between the um, data science modeling team and the investment professionals to synthesize the data science projections into um, actionable insights for the investment percent of professionals to consume and layer into their investment process. Um, prior to uh, me starting there, there wasn't really a translational layer where the data science projections and alternative data projections were consumable uh, in a digestible format. And then that's readily interpretable for the investment professionals. Got it. It's where I come from, that's oftentimes called a sector data analyst. Is that what a, a sector data analyst or an SDA is? Yes. Exactly. Awesome. So what do you do now as like the head data scientist at a massive fund? Uh, what, is, what are the things that you're thinking about and, and what are the tools that you're using to, to build everything out? Sure. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the workflow, a lot of the work is very similar to what I was doing in my prior role, um, except now I'm more of a generalist and look at data sets um, um, across sectors, across domains. And in terms of the tools that I use, well, primarily it's Jupyter Notebook. I um, spend 90% of my life in Jupyter. Uh, but in terms of other technology and tech stacks, there's always AWS and as a, as an S3 as a file storage system. Um, we can use uh, QuickSight or Tableau or any other uh, data viz platform. And uh, Snowflake, obviously, is like the, one of the best uh, data warehousing solutions out there for those who aren't super technically savvy and are able to take structured data stored anywhere, whether it's GCP or AWS S3 or Azure, and pipe it into uh, a table that's readily queryable and you don't have to worry about allocating EC2 instances and spinning up clusters and spinning down clusters to uh, to, to run your queries. Um, the load balancing and resource management is a lift in itself and Snowflake has solved that issue for a lot of uh, data science professionals who are running a very lean operation. Um, in my prior role at Point72, um, there was a large data engineering platform that solved all these solutions for us, where it was super simple to just access a database, pull down the data, run queries, run your analysis, and push out that analysis, whether it's something that 
you find interesting, you can push it out into production or you can take those and that information and be able to rapidly do analytics and modeling and test ideas in a very scalable fashion. In the leaner data science operation, you have to take all these different data sets and, you know, and the easiest solution to manage all that workflow is through Snowflake. Yeah, and I'm personally a huge Snowflake fan. I remember the first time that we were running this very large OLAP-like query on a large time series and need to do these complex aggregations. Um, we had a couple different on-prem solutions and we just dumped it into Snowflake and ran the query through like an 8x large at it and it finished it in like 15 minutes when the alternative was taking, let's say like eight hours. And there's obviously a, an interesting model that Snowflake has around that was like, hey, like we can run any query that you want if you're willing to pay for it. And they're not in the business of necessarily helping you optimize that query because you using more compute means more money coming into their pocket. So personally, huge Snowflake fan, think that they do an awesome job at being able to abstract away a lot of the complexity with incredible engineering and great UX. But the downside is, is how do you actually manage all of the costs associated with this really powerful tool once anything is really possible? But yeah, huge Snowflake fan. On the Jupyter front, also huge Jupyter fan. I remember when um, I realized that the Jupyter Notebook is completely customizable with plugins. That's like the web interface that you see within Jupyter is completely manipulable with plugins. So if you wanted to add in a button that would go through and look at all of your code and maybe copy it out and store it somewhere or use it in a unique way, that the Jupyter plugin system is um, very flexible. You can modify the entire DOM of the UI. So you can start creating these unique user experiences on top of uh, Jupyter, like Papermill came out of Netflix for uh, notebook scheduling uh, and being able to like create a notebook, store a lot of the metadata in it, give it to somebody else and have that metadata kind of transfer with it uh, is a really interesting way of doing research. And I think that Jupyter's, it's already kind of embedded its role within the data science and research process. But I think that we're only starting to scratch the surface what's really possible with it. I think there's one of the coolest projects that I've seen recently is something called Jupyter Lite, where you can run a Jupyter notebook and it's using a Python interpreter that's compiled down to Wasm WebAssembly. It runs in the browser. So there is no backend server. You're just writing Python code in a notebook and it is all executing in the browser without a backend server. You can then take that notebook, send it over to somebody else. It includes the compiled Python interpreter within WebAssembly in it, and they can open it up and just execute it in any anywhere in the world, as long as they have access to the underlying data. But that underlying data could be a SQLite table that a user would be able to query. So like the, the things that you can do, I think now with Jupyter, especially within Python in the browser, is going to be, I think, really transformative in terms of how these pipelines look in the future. Uh, there's one database that I'm personally a huge fan of recently. It's called Materialize. And it's something called like a, a streaming database where you can write a SQL query, and subscribe to changes in the underlying data and what the effect is of that SQL query. So you could say, I want to um, select average age, uh, comma, gender from table group by gender. And that's going to give you the result of that with the genders and the average age for each. But then you can subscribe to whenever there's a new row inserted, updated, or deleted in that underlying table 
to then have that provide a callback to a handler that just gets an update, not of the new row that was added or the insert or the delete. It just tells you this is the new average age. And so you write your logic that's already oftentimes in SQL, but you can start seeing what is the end result real-time streaming for that. And there's really interesting use cases within finance um, for that, whether it's an options trading strategy or it is a you want to have a, a series of events happen when a new when an analyst gets new coverage from an operation standpoint to when a language model is identifying a new topic showing up within a corpus of research to automatically then just trigger this downstream logic that's still already written in SQL. So I think what Snowflake has done to be able to add in compute for a user that's not as, uh, as technically savvy the materialize is going to do something similar to be able to start making everything real time. Because people always say, I want it faster. I want it now. As soon as it happens, let me know. Materialize is starting to make that accessible with a UX that's almost as easy to use as Snowflake was when I first used it. Love to be able to keep talking on that. But now that we're talking on disruptive technologies, I, there's no way that we can't start discussing uh, large language models. GPT-4 just came out this week. There's been a slew of integrations already. I see it transforming everything that we do within the asset management space, and especially as a technologist, that there are so many opportunities to be able to leverage it within front office, middle office, back office, that I, I just can't stop exploding with ideas. I'm curious what your thoughts are right now as you're seeing GPT-4 come out, Llama got released last week from Facebook. How do you see it being used in the space? Sure, yeah. I mean, in terms of like the data science space, traditionally um, data science is like a three-piece Venn diagram of math and statistics, domain knowledge, and software engineering. Um, having skill set in all three verticals um, makes you effective at the role. Um, Chat GPT can help in a number of those verticals. So if you are coding something, a lot of times we have to search Stack Overflow for a solution or a debugging issue or to start a template. Um, Chat GPT will be able to scale that much more quickly. Um, you're looking or Googling, you want to research something about a specific topic, Chat GPT will help summarize help find topics and help summarize topics for you. Um, I personally were, was looking for a specific data set across the U.S. Census uh, website. And, you know, as we all know, it's massive and very difficult to navigate. Um, I was looking for a specific data series, asked ChatGPT, and it pointed me exactly to where I could find it within the Census website. And so it helps me personally scale up my work faster and helps me code faster. It's a... Um, force multiplier for productivity. So some of the interesting use cases that I've seen are um, being able to take a screenshot of a chart and screen grab a section of it, have the mod and then pass the model. What is the reason for this divergence here between maybe two trend lines? And you then give the model a little bit more context and it can read from the x-axis, that's a date, the y-axis is maybe a stock price, and the date in which the two lines diverge, go and be able to look at news, summarize anything that was interesting happening around then, and then surface that. And the way that you can start 
taking information and be able to pull out relevant pieces that you can then push that into a language model that can do some interpretation and summarization. And then, and then secondly, either in order to make that language model able to do something interesting with it, I think it needs to be like two options. One is it needs to be trained on a very relevant corpus as well as very relevant uh, training data that have specific inputs and outputs. Um, or two, I think you can actually get very far with intelligent prompts that direct a language model on what it should do in certain scenarios. So an example for that is I have a language model. Uh, I want to build it in-house for some big multi-manager and I want to then have an investment professional be able to add in this language model in, on like the right-hand side in a chat box next to a UI. And I want to say, uh, what are the biggest risks in my portfolio? Now, the language model, if you were just to have it say, go try to figure that out, like it doesn't know what your portfolio is. It might, it, it, it doesn't necessarily know how to think about risks. Um, but if you were to, for example, say, language model, the user is asking this question, what are the biggest risks in my portfolio? We have 10 different APIs. One of them is for portfolio risk decomposition. If a user asks about risk decomposition, route their request to this API and figure out what is the date that they're asking about, who their user is, which portfolio are they asking about, and then structure the arguments for calling out this API, whether it's a, a REST API or a Python API, in strings, lists, integers, dates, whatever the API interface is, and send me that output. And me is this API middle layer that will then take that output, call the API, get the results, and send it back to the language model saying, the user originally asked, what are the risks in my portfolio? We called the risk decomposition API. The results of that is they have, let's say, $100 million in, let's hope they don't have that. Let's say they have $1 million in dollar beta vol. They have $100,000 in uh, long-term mo, $100,000 in short-term momentum, and $600,000 in idiovolatility within their portfolio. Now, the model can go back and say, oh, you actually have a tremendous amount of beta volatility. Uh, if you, beta volatility is the amount of dollar volatility in your portfolio that's attributed to the market going up and down, for example, your exposure to the S&P 500, we'd recommend that you would hedge that out potentially by adding in a, depending whether you're directionally long or short, um, a, uh, a counter direction position within the S&P 500. And then the model could even call back to the API that does risk decomposition, say, what is the ideal portfolio structure given what they currently have? Pass that in as maybe a list of positions and quantities. We want to zero out their beta volatility exposure. And then an API that's very deterministic executes that, gets the resulting portfolio, sends that back to the language model. The language model then turns that into something that you and I would be able to read. And then the user gets that back on an interface that it just says, this is your dollar vol and beta. This is relatively high. Add this name to your portfolio, scale up your existing positions by this much, and that's going to be a much better balanced portfolio. The user's like, oh my gosh, that's magic. How did that actually happen? And we're, you're able to achieve that not by 
training a language model how to do, in this case, risk decomposition. You're training the language model how to use the APIs that already exist that do risk decomposition and how to figure out what are the arguments that you should pass to it and how should you interpret the results and then do what you're really good at is summarization. And that's where I'm starting to see using a language model for everything. Yes. It, the LLMs are really powerful in integrating disaggregate sources of information, centralizing it, synthesizing it, and giving you a clean and accurate summarized results. Um, there are some issues with GPT-3 where certain pieces of information is factually wrong. But you could see that in some of the sources that they've cited, which were ultimately scientific papers that didn't exist. But as the language models get better and better through each iteration, um, the inaccuracies are going away and the synthesis is becoming that much more powerful based on the information you feed it. At least in the asset management space or in like on the, on the data science side, structuring data, we work with primarily structured data, but there are times when there is lots of unstructured data that needs to be synthesized and, and cleaned up in a way that you can analyze. And one way you could do this, take billing information of credit card transactions and mapping it uh, based on like the abbreviated uh, billing description. What is the location? What is the date? What is the venue? What is the merchant? Um, potentially, what is the city? What is the state? And before that required a massive team of regex professionals where they were able to capture close to 99% um, accuracy um, with lots of legwork. But ChatGPT could potentially take that and you know have much higher accuracy with potentially uh, less effort. Mm -hmm. And so being able to do it scalably across all the different vendors is something that's super interesting. Um, like one example is like Ann Taylor Loft. Um, but if you look at on the billing description, uh, it's really hard to disaggregate that. But you have to have a very custom regex filter to filter out those transactions. Then you have a separate regex filter for other merchants out there that um, may not be as clean. ChatGPT can take all this information and automatically um, map those unstructured data into a structured format to analyze. Love that. And for the listeners that didn't quite follow what Sachin was explaining, there are large data sets that aggregate consumer credit card transactions that have how much money was spent and then a description about the transaction, which is the same thing that you might see on your checking account balance or your, your credit card statement. Uh, and Sacha was giving examples how sometimes people will use a regular expression to be able to identify where was that money being spent? Um, what was it being spent on? And for a long time, human beings would put those in. And then there were starting to be these more intuitive and intelligent models that were being applied. Can, can they beat a human being? And if you were to go back several years, the human being was better. Um, I'd be curious now, because there is a lot of nuance in that. I don't want to go into the details, but it is very, very, very nuanced. And how can a machine kind of get some of those nuances um, without initially being instructed? But if it's able to leverage additional corpus outside of just the domain, but look at news, new store openings, new locations, be able to understand 
um, addresses across the, like North America as well as Europe, South America, that incorporating all that could be really valuable. So um, there's then the problem of scale. Like how would you go out and tagging individual records if you do have a language model? Um, you obviously would just only need to be looking at unique descriptions, not every description, but there's also scalability problems. Regular expressions are, are generally pretty scalable. But yeah, there's no way that you don't start throwing some of these language models at a lot of the problems that you've been trying to solve within, especially the alternative data space, but everywhere within the asset manager space. Because it's, it's honestly a supply chain company, but it's information supply and not physical supply. And there's a lot of infrastructure, legacy systems, and human beings that have to make sure that supply chain continues to funnel up to the top of the pyramid for an investment professional to be able to make a smart, intelligent, risk-adjusted decision on behalf of the LPs. But anywhere along that supply chain that you can make faster, more accurate um, with a large language model is, is ripe for disruption. And there's honestly everything from where you get reference data about an ISIN and a CEDAW coming from a vendor for your, your reference data side to your mapping of all of that to your internal taxonomies to when a user is asking like what is the seed all for this ISIN? what is the bloomberg yellow key for this um seed all that a language model could either tell you exactly what it is or it could do a really quick look up to the api to make that seamless but then they could also think oh well what's the, also the end of day pricing what's the pricing history of all of this well how does that backtest to my internal alphas just can you run that for me um and then you could say just, just run this for me every day um, and there's just so many opportunities that you can start using the possibilities of the language model as glue within the information supply chain that just, it's, it's mind blowing when you start thinking about it. So you've been in the space for a while, right? Like people are starting to use the term alternative data more often now, but if you were to go back 10 years, it wasn't something that you could just Google and get a really good definition around, but you were there for the beginning of all of that. Walk me through what it was like 10, 12 years ago when you were just getting into the data science space within these asset managers and how it's changed from where it's at today. Yeah. So when it first started, there was always industry data that was not defined as alternative data. Alternative data generally is data that's consumed not by investment professionals, it's consumed by industry insiders uh, targeting within the specific domains and sectors that you're operating in. For example, you can look at truckstop.com, for example, is a, is, a, is, a, is a data set that tracks trucking information and truck volumes. You can look at um, the Manaheim Index, which has used auto prices. Um, and in the healthcare space, there was this IMS data set, which had information on drug prices sold through retail pharmacies. And so these are data sets that were been around for a long enough time that were consumed by industry professionals, whether it's like the pharma companies or auto players or, or uh, the, the logistic providers. But ultimately, these data sets had information that were actionable and interesting for investment professionals to get smarter on the space and to have insights that are orthogonal to uh, their um, they were orthogonal to their process mm -hmm. before they, the research that they were consuming was looking at 
financial information available in 10Ks, 10Qs, earnings calls, transcripts, management presentations, non-deal roadshows. And then they eventually expanded to expert networks. And then they eventually expanded into, into all alternative data. And so combining all the sources of information, uh, you can have a better understanding of a sector, which will ultimately help you make better investment decisions. Um, part of that process um, when it comes to alternative data is to take, uh, to, to ingest massive amounts of data sets that are raw, unstructured, and requires a pretty heavy technological lift to uh, put that into a framework that could be analyzed. Totally. And that's where uh, technologists like you uh, come in and uh, make that possible. Yeah. And so when I first got into the world of alternative data in 2000, let's say 18, there was a lot of secrecy around it. Like people wouldn't say the name of a data set. They wouldn't say who was using it. It was like this world of walled gardens that as an engineer, when you're trying to help make things better, make things faster, make data more reliable, you need to have communication. And early on, there just wasn't a lot of that. Um, but one, once I was able to build relationships and let people trust you as an engineer, you realize there's just a lot of rat's nest in terms of how a lot of the data pipelines were initially built for these alternative data sets where it was originally an investment professional that knew that this data has got to be valuable. So they're hacking away in Excel. They then say like, oh, we need to have somebody help us understand this better. They hire in a data scientist and they're going to start maybe using Python for the first time but they're not going to be able to create something that's reusable for something like healthcare claims or for a credit card data set. And that's when an engineer comes in and says like, hey, a lot of what you're doing is reusable and there are frameworks that you can create to not make every single data set that you're using something that is ad hoc and piecemeal. And so that's one of the first things that we started trying to transform in like 2017, 2018. Uh, one of the favorite tools that I had for that, it's still around, it's called Airflow. It is an orchestration engine written in Python. It's built around batch processing, but it allows you to define your DAG, a directed acyclic graph, in a dependency structure for where's the raw data and coming in from S3, coming in from a file system, FTP, wherever the source is, and what are the systematic transformations that need to happen in order for it to end up in a data warehouse or some sort of structured end database? And up until there were engineers that were starting to bring some of these tools to light to the data science team and the investment professional, like it was, it was kind of scary how all over the place a lot of the technology was. But you, you haven't just been working within the equity space for a, uh, your entire career. You've, you now work, as, work in the credit space, which... There's a lot of dependencies there. Like you're looking at from a macro perspective, a lot of similar things, but from an asset class, it's, it's quite different. And we haven't had anyone on the show yet that has a credit background. So you could, could you walk us through equity versus credit and what are the things that you think about when you're working in the credit space? Sure. Yeah. I mean, in the equity space, from my experience, has been primarily focused on short-term price predictions on specific company KPIs using alternative data sets. Um, there's a lot of efforts and resources in trying to improve accuracy and have low um, out of sample error and low mean square um, in terms of trying to uh, improve model quality. On the credit space, 
your typical investment, you underwrite a multi-year view because you hold the positions for a much longer time and take larger positions that are held for a longer period of time. In the equity space, you intend to underwrite uh, investments for a three-month or a six-month view. So this is a much shorter time frame. And um, the, uh, in the multi-manager market neutral space, you're trying to trade around the top line KPIs, but on the credit space, you're trying to really understand the business and you're really trying to understand um, the sector. And so taking the alternative data sets, you're able to build insights that are not only complementary to the research process, but also orthogonal to the research process. And so there are things that you can do from taking credit card data, for example, and um, binning it by household income cohort or earn a household income cohort and aggregating um, those weights by a specific merchant. Um, that type of insight is not as useful to a um, equity investor because they're mostly trying to capture idiosyncratic returns, which are primarily driven by uh, performance relative to consensus expectations um, ahead of a catalyst event. On the credit side, um, you take much larger positions. And so um, all of these customer lifetime value metrics, all of these um, um, asset quality metrics are much more contemplated into the research process. And so thinking about alternative data from uh, insights you can generate that are that could have a much longer shelf life is like the approach before. Um, while as the, in the equity side, you're mostly focused on um, highly accurate top-line point estimates. Mm -hmm. So for the average listener out there, when they hear credit, uh, they don't necessarily immediately go to a specific type of financial product. So when you say credit, are you thinking about a, a bond, a buying a bank loan, buying a structured product like a CLO of bank loans? What does credit mean to you in terms of the actual investable products? Uh, primarily when it relates to the alternative data space, it's corporate credit. So it's very similar um, in types of similar type of sectors and domain expertise as in equities, but you're just higher up in the capital structure. So you can buy like the first lien, the second lien, um, anything that's higher than the equity on the capital stack. And um, these are positions that are um, less risky than equity and uh, but are also um, uh, held for a longer period of time and tend to hold those positions for a longer period of time. And these positions are also um, theoretically traded less frequently as the equity would be. A lot of times when you think about investing in credit and you find an opportunity um, to, you have to have traders to source that paper uh, to um, bring it in-house. Generally, um, it's not done through um, a centralized ex uh, electronic exchange like a lot of the equity world stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you know why that is? I've had various conversations over the years of people talking about um, off the run liquidity for credit products, bonds just doesn't really exist. And I've never gotten somebody to explain to me why that is. Do you happen to have any thoughts on that? I don't have like a strong view. Um, I'll, I'll probably work on like uh, in, in space where things are less frequently traded. And so once an investment is approved through committee, they spend a lot of time to source paper uh, to, to ultimately build a position. You don't, you don't really build a full position overnight. And 
Um, a lot of times paper becomes available um, for various factors. And so whether a certain CLO is exiting a position or another manager is trying to um, decrease the exposure through their uh, through some other uh, exogenous factor that's unclear but ultimately to build a position in equity if you're like a stock and you want to have full exposure you can you can get that full exposure by um either in minutes or days but in in the equity in the credit world it takes a much longer time to to, to size up properly so sachin uh, question for you, going back to the alternative data side, I'm seeing more high frequency trading firms that are interested in alt data for their use cases. And I've used it from a discretionary perspective where you could think about it sometimes maybe down to an hour, but oftentimes it's time horizons of days, weeks, sometimes months. What is the use case for a lower latency trading strategy that's thinking about things at like the second level when it comes to using alt data? At a high level, a lot of high frequency trading is stat arb, which is a fancy word for mean reversion, where you're short one stock and you're long another stock that are perfectly co-integrated, and you capture the spread compression between those two over a certain time frame. Um, and from a risk perspective, you're completely hedged against market moves because you're beta neutral, and you're just capturing those idiosyncratic moves as they compress together. and Usually, your longest stock due to uh, short-term illiquidity pocket, and then your shortest stock due to um, a short-term inflated sentiment uh, position. And so, those are the two um, uh, market drivers we're capturing the move um, based on the the trade. And the way alternative data fits into the mix is that you have these time series projections on a minute, five minute. 10 minute and various time intervals and alternative data can tell you ultimately where the price is going to converge to. And so if you have a view of, you want to make a trade on the five minute interval, but then you see, uh, and you're wrong, but you know where the stock's ultimately going to end up uh, at the, at the, at a five day interval, the, you can have more margin of safety. So if you're saying, if you think stock is long, for the next 30 minutes, but uh, you're wrong, uh, but your alternative data will add your conviction that stock is long for the next 24 hours, you can, um, and if you're wrong, you still have a chance to capture the upside gains. So there's the examples of using ChatGPT for to be able to surface information for you based off a request. But then there's a lot of this proprietary information that comes out of equity research. And Morgan Stanley recently came out with their own language model using GPT-4 as a baseline and then train it on this additional corpus of research that they have. And then there's other companies out there like AlphaSense. They acquired Sentio last year. They are a tool that's used across the street for doing equity research across different brokers, trying to be able to find different sentiments and then like understand supply chains of organizations. So if you're asking about what's going on within a Apple supply chain, they might know that uh, TSMC does the chip manufacturing for their M1, M2. So what are the research that's going on within TSMC that could affect Apple? And they've done most of that, to my understanding, without any large language models, but like now they're bringing that capabilities into the product offering. and to me, like that seems as though it will be absolute game changer. 
Um, and it'll be interesting to see like these firms, let's say AlphaSense or somebody like AlphaSense does cross broker sell side research aggregation to be able to train a language model plus all the capabilities of GBT4 is then if you are a fund, do you just rely on that? Or do you also train your own model on data that you have internally that you don't share? For example, what is your histor historical estimates been for different uh, KPIs? What is your internal research that you've been producing over the years? What are your current positions? What's your portfolio? What do you have that only exists within your walls? And then know when that you when your language model should outsource some requests to a AlphaSense or a Morgan Stanley like language model so that you can use your own data for what you have that no one else does and then give that to your investment teams as their alpha, but then making sure that they're not losing on any alpha that the market has across the board by using some of these either sell side research firm language models or um, language models that are built by these data aggregators. But then I see like, how is Bloomberg going to come into the space, right? Because Bloomberg has kind of a monopoly on a lot of data when it comes to the, um, the investment industry. And they don't necessarily, what will the licensing be, I think, for Bloomberg if they were to say we want to create a language model built on top of the research that is pushed through the, the Bloomberg terminal or some of the Bloomberg APIs. Reuters also has like a big feed. Um, and so there's a huge demand for all of this. It's not that hard to do. Like this is now very easy to do if you have an engineer working on it full time that they could crank some of this stuff out relatively quickly. Um, what is it going to look like in the future? But the winner of all of this is the investment professional, like the, the investment professional that actually does have really good insight. They know how to use these tools and these tools are unified in a way that it just works in their investment process. Um, they're going to be the ones that ultimately end up winning. Now, there's probably going to some people as part of that information supply chain that they might get automated away. You don't necessarily maybe need as many of them. The number of vendors might start shrinking. Um, and the number of engineers that you need to be able to build out these tools for the investment professional might not be as high. But the winner in all this is the investment professional because the tools that they're going to have available to them within the next I don't know, one to five years is going to be mind blowing. And from a technology perspective, like that's opportunity, that's exciting. Like what are these things that we can build with a lot of these new tools to be able to create experiences, insight, information um, that just have never even been thought of before. I honestly, I'm, I'm excited every day when I wake up now to open up my Jupyter Notebook open up my VS code and just start hacking away at different use cases for some of these language models. And it is just mind blowing. Um, now's the best time to be sitting in this seat and sitting in that seat. And I, I couldn't be more excited about it. So with that, let's just call it a day. So Sasha, love you coming on the show. Um, can't wait for us to catch up again when I'm back in New York. And thanks everyone for tuning into the Hedgineer podcast. So again, my name is Michael. This is Sachin. You can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Join us in the Slack channel uh, where I'm working on most of this all day. We're also live on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. And all of these videos get uploaded to YouTube. So hopefully one of those works for you. And if none of them do, uh, hit me up on LinkedIn or check us out at hedgineer.io. I'm Michael, and I'll catch you next week. Hedgineer.